All right, hey everyone, good morning. Uh, welcome to The Exchange, so glad you guys are here with us. Uh, if you're new here, just wanna say welcome. My name's Josiah, I'd love to meet you after and just say what's up and just get to know you a little bit. But we are in the Gospel of Mark, and if you would, turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark 14, you can turn there now. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We would love to get you a Bible so you can follow along. But Mark chapter 14. All right, so Mark chapter 14, we started the Gospel of Mark earlier in January this year. Uh, we'll be finishing up in a few weeks. Just so you know what's kind of happening next, we'll be doing a short series on the Holy Spirit, which I'm so excited about. Uh, we'll do a short series on the Holy Spirit, and then we'll get into Christmas. And then the new year, we're going to start the book of Philippians and uh, just share some vision in the new year, what's going on in 2019. And I can't believe it's already almost 2019. That is mind-blowing to me. Uh, but we're in the Gospel of Mark chapter 14. So you can turn there. Like I said, we're, we're taking the year. This is our first year as a church. We, we just want to build on the foundation of Jesus. Who is he? What did he do? What did he claim? What did he say? And, and we want to get to know the real Jesus. There's a lot of ideas about Jesus, maybe what he did or said, or maybe some misunderstandings of Jesus. And so our desire is just to study and get to know the real Jesus, to fall in love with the real Jesus, and to build our church's foundation on Christ. That is our hope. That is why we're taking our time. That is why we're still in chapter 14. After 11 months, we just want to enjoy and and get to know Jesus as we study this. And so here we are in Mark chapter 14. Uh, we call this the passion, as I mentioned. This is really the last few hours leading up to Jesus' death. And as we study this, again, the intensity just picks up more and more. If you're with us last week, or if you weren't, I'll just kind of fill you in. Last week, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was praying. The disciples were sleeping, and the enemy was very active. And I want us to think about that scenario. Jesus was praying. The disciples were sleeping and we have an active enemy. And that is still true today. That we have Jesus, Hebrews says, he's always praying or making intercession for us. We have the church many times that is often sleeping, and we have a very active enemy. And so we studied last week, and what we looked at last week was really this, this battle between the flesh and the spirit. How so often there's, the flesh wants to sleep while the spirit needs or gives itself to prayer. And we saw the disciples really look, giving into their flesh and Jesus being led and being really dominated. His life was dominated by the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we looked at last week, and then Jesus was arrested in the garden. All the disciples fled. We read that weird short story where one of the disciples got unloosed from his garment, and it says he ran away naked, and we're like, what is that about? Like, what was that all about? And we talked about how this wasn't the first time man ran away from, garden, man ran away from God in a garden naked. This wasn't the first time man fled from God in a garden naked. And it's almost like a reenactment of the Garden of Eden, where man ran away from God in the garden naked. And what we see is this, Jesus was abandoned in the garden just like God was abandoned in the garden, but we see Jesus being abandoned also brought us in. It's almost like a reenactment of the garden of, of Eden, of what's happening in the garden of Gethsemane. So Jesus being taken, and here's what we're gonna see today. Here's what we're gonna look at. We're gonna see Jesus on trial, and we're gonna see Peter on trial. And honestly, Mark does this a lot. I've mentioned this, but Mark kind of parallels or compares and contrasts two stories. He starts off by introducing Peter in verse 53, talks about Jesus, then goes back to Peter's life. And why I'm bringing this up is we're going to see Jesus in a legitimate on a trial and Peter on a much smaller scale also on trial. Jesus is being judged and he's being condemned innocently. Peter's also being judged, but he's guilty, but he actually goes free. And so we're going to see the difference between Jesus and Peter and how Jesus was faithful in his moment of weakness and trial and how we see Peter was unfaithful. And really we learn so much about, not just about Jesus and Peter, but we do learn a lot about us in the process. Obviously we learn about Jesus and us, how we respond the same way, how we have a faithful Jesus and really the unfaithfulness of man. 
we see Peter be, we see Peter kind of cowarding, one who boasted, I will not leave you, I will not deny you, and then he's the one denying him three times. And so I do want to look at this more in depth, and I, I want to read this all the way through because we do see the difference between Jesus and Peter, and here's the idea, it's Jesus and Peter on trial. And, and we're going to see so many small details in here where Peter went wrong, how Jesus stood up boldly, being judged innocently, the judge of the world taking on judgment. And so there's so many um, paradoxes here and little like, nuggets Mark throws in. I, I want you to see that. So let's just read. It's Mark chapter 14. We'll read in verse 53 to the end, and then we'll pray. Uh, Mark chapter 14, verse 53. Read with me. It says, so remember, they just took Jesus captive in the garden. The man runs away naked. Verse 53, it says, and they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes. But Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And Peter sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him. Notice all the witness, testimony, witness, testimony. We'll talk about that. We heard him, they said. They, we heard Jesus say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. That's not what he said, verse 59. But, but not even their testimonies, but not, but not even then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, do you answer nothing? What is it? What is it? What it, sorry, what is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked Jesus, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus said to him, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned Jesus to be deserving of death. Then some began to spit on him, and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, you, were, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again, and they began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But Peter denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean, and your speech shows you, it betrays you. Then, then he began, Peter began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time, the rooster crowed. Then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when Peter thought about it, he wept. That is our text. Let's pray. Father, I do just ask that um, what it is you, you want to show us at this moment, our church here and now, that you would speak to us. Jesus, we thank you that under intense pressure, that you were just gracious and filled with strength Jesus, help us learn from, from Peter. God, we are more like him than we think. I am more like him than we think. God, we thank you that Peter learned from Peter. We thank you, God, that his life did not end in this way. But God, I just ask that you would just, um, just speak to us, speak to our hearts. God, I think many of us are, are tired or, or we've experienced a pressure 
maybe s- much smaller but similar to this this week, and we're exhausted, we're tired, we're beat up, God, and I ask that you just refresh your hearts. I ask that you'd be here, that we'd hear from your spirit, God. What is it you want to say to us? Just give us ears to hear, we ask in your wonderful name. Amen. How, how do you respond when the pressure is on? Like, I want, to, I want you to think about this. When you're going through an intense moment of crisis, what, what do you do? What comes out of you? How do you respond in that moment? Like, think back throughout your life. Whenever you've gone through something pretty intense, what did you say? How did you react? How did you respond? You know, I think for you athletes, how did you respond the moment of pressure when that shot was on the line? Like, did you take it? Did you not take it? Did you make it? Did you miss it? Like, how did you respond? Maybe for those in your workplace and your boss is in the meeting with you and he's watching you closely, how do you respond when the pressure's on? He's looking at you or over your shoulder looking at your project. How do you respond in simple day-to-day life? I don't know if you've ever had someone like watch you tie your shoes and you're like, I forgot how to tie my shoes. Like, how do you respond when the pressure is on, when people are looking and they're watching intently and closely? I've failed many times, many times under pressure. More often, I, I've, I've failed under intense pressure. My sophomore year of high school, I remember um, our, our basketball team, I was a sophomore, we were all pretty young, young team. We were sophomores and we had one senior who was seven foot and he was terrible. One of two seven foot kids in all of Orange County, California, we'd pass him the ball, just hit him in the face. I mean, so awkward, so uncoordinated. In my sophomore year of basketball, we went two and 24. Two and 24. And those two teams that lost to us were really discouraged. Um, and it was a tough season. I remember towards the end of the game, like, we're down, we're down, we're up. It was such a close game, but, like, under, like, in the fourth quarter, in the last minute or two, they'd double-team us. We'd just crumble. We'd fall apart. We'd dribble the foot off, we'd dribble the ball off our foot and go out of bounds. I mean, we just did this, the craziest stuff, and it seems like in, in moments of pressure, we'd seem to crumble, and I want you to think about that. I mean, even today, what distinguishes a character trait we all value, like, a great athlete from the best athletes is what? How do they handle the pressure? Do they step up? Do they perform? Do they fail? Think about some of the athletes that are known for not stepping up. Maybe guys like Charles Barkley or Patrick Ewing, maybe they didn't step up, or a guy like Tony Romeo, he didn't step up under pressure, or dare I say, Dan Marino. Um, I don't know, but I'm just saying, think about the people that didn't step up. You go, man, they're, they're really, they're great, but it distinguishes maybe the great from the best. Like, what comes out of them in that moment of crisis? You know, it's been said about us, it says people are like tea bags. You don't know what's in them until they're placed in hot water. And I think it's true. Like, I think the moments of pressure reveal what's really in us. Like, the moments of intense pressure, because what's going to come out of this person at this moment in this time? And here's what we see. Here's Jesus in an intense moment of pressure, and we see what comes out of him. And it's beauty, and it's grace, and it's strength. And then Peter, under intense pressure, what is it? He just crumbles. He's cursing, he's swearing, he's blaspheming. I mean, what comes out in those intense moments? And here's what I want to like, as I was praying through this today for our church and this text, I'm like, okay, Jesus, I, I want to study your life and I want to know you, but what are you showing us, our church today, 2018? What are you speaking to us? This verse came to my mind in regards to this text. It's 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 13. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. When you think of the story of, of Peter and Jesus, what is it? Jesus was so faithful, and even we're faithless, he still is faithful. Why? Because he cannot deny who he is. Our God is faithful. He just, that's who he is. I mean, the essence of Christianity is there's this relationship, and there needs to be faithfulness, but the faithfulness is kept on God's end. And I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that when I crumble, that when I fall apart, that when I give in in those moments of pressure or standing in front of someone talking about Jesus or my life, I'm so thankful that even though I might fail, Jesus is still faithful. And here's what we see. So as we look at this text, we're going to compare Jesus' faithfulness in, in many ways to not just Peter's unfaithfulness, but our unfaithfulness many times. 
And so I want you to notice something or see something. Um, this word witness or testifying or testimonies or whatever, it's the, same, it's the same Greek word. In these nine verses, you'll see the word witness, testimony, testify seven times, seven times. All right, so here's this idea. Um, the word martyr in Greek literally means witness, testify, testimony. So you'll see in this passage, if you're just reading it, it'd be like the martyr, 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 martyr. And it's talking about a witness, testimony. And the idea is Jesus was that true and faithful witness. He was that martyr. And he actually became a martyr. He actually died, right? For what he believed. And you see Peter, who's also a witness, but it's not a true and faithful witness. It's a different kind of witness. It's a false witness. And we see this kind of compare and contrast of these witnesses coming. Jesus, we, we see, we, we see that kind of this idea of a witness. And here, I, I want to like point this out. It's a courtroom scenario. Think about a courtroom. All right, so it's almost as if Peter sworn in. If you remember last week in verse 29 and 31, Peter said, even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. Verse 31, Peter said, if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. It's almost like Peter swore in in court. Like, I will not deny you. Even if all stumble, I will not. They might fail you, but I'm not going to. So Peter, like, swears in, but then he, we see that he falls so short. And it's almost this courtroom scene of Jesus being on trial. The God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the judge of everything is on trial and being judged. And then you have Peter, who's also being judged. And you see the, the difference between how Jesus responds and how Peter responds. And again, Mark does this a lot. He compares and he contrasts. So I'm going to throw up a few things really quick before we give, get into this, just so you can see the big picture of what Mark is pointing out, uh, how you compare Jesus and Peter. Look at this. Uh, first thing is this. While Jesus is under fire, Peter's warming himself by the fire. While Jesus confesses the truth under immense pressure, Peter denies the tru- truth under basic pressure. While Jesus gives himself, Peter saves himself. While Peter's swearing against Jesus, Jesus is making a claim for his divine sonship. We see Jesus and Peter on trial. We see this compare and contrast. And so here's how we're going to look at this, these two sections today. We're going to first of all see the faithful witness of Jesus and the unfaithful witness of man. The faithful witness of Jesus and the unfo- unfaithful witness of man. So let's just look at the first one. The faithful witness of Jesus. What does he do? How does he respond? Mark first kind of introduces us to Peter because he's like, I'm going to come back to that. So look at verse 53. Verse 53, it says, And they led Jesus away to the high priest, and with him were assembled all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes, but Peter followed Jesus at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with his servants, and he warmed himself at the fire. All right, so let's just, let's just slow down. Uh, Jesus taken. He's taken to the, the, really the assembly between the high priest, the elders, the, the scribes. He's on trial, and there's Peter in the distance following, right? Peter who said, I'll never deny you. Peter says, if I have to die with you, if I, if I have to die with you, I will. And what I want us to see is these two phrases. And obviously you notice them. It says, Peter followed Jesus at a distance. And obviously we have to take note of that. We can't move on from that. Peter's trying to remain safe somewhat, but it's never really safe following Jesus at a distance. You see, we go, why is he following, why is he following Jesus at a distance? Like, what's happening? What's changing? What's, what's going on in his heart? Is he afraid? It's like, Peter had so much courage. What's going on now at this point? And it's funny. I know that people, and I will a lot of times read this and go, I can't believe Peter followed at a distance. One author said, hey, at least he's following Jesus at all. The other guys aren't even there. So some might say, he's following at a distance. How dare he? But another thought is, man, there's no one else following, it seems like. At least Peter's somewhat following. But here's the problem again. It's never safe following Jesus at a distance. I mean, that is written there on purpose, I so believe. For us, church, Christians, today, 2018, it's never safe following Jesus at a distance. You know, I honestly had to come to the point in my Christian journey, maybe you have too, you go, I'm either all in or I'm just not. 
on Friday, I was hanging out with some guys that are not Christians, and we were actually playing basketball for a little bit, and, and they saw my wedding ring. They're like, oh, you're married? I'm like, yeah, I'm married. Like, oh, for how long? And it always freaks people out when I answer. I'm like, 10 years? Like, are you, how, what? Were you 12 when you got married? I'm like, yeah. yeah. Um, so like, yo, man, what's your secret? 10 years, you know, and they're just talking to me about, you know, their struggles. My baby mom, and then they're just like talking to me, opening up. So I'm just saying, okay, hey. So I'm just sharing with them, and, I, and they said, like, how can you stay so committed? And, and honestly, the conversation obviously got back to Jesus. And I said, hey, here's the thing. Because they, they, they were like, oh, man, yeah, you believe in God? I believe in God. We're, me and God are straight. We're good. And it came back to this. I go, hey, there came a certain point in time in my life where I said, I'm either all in following Jesus or I'm all out. Like, I was following Jesus on the fence for a long time, and it's miserable. It's miserable partially following Jesus. It's miserable following Jesus at a distance. And there comes a point in time you say, I'm either all in this, I'm going to give myself fully to Jesus, or I'm just going to, I just have to let go of this. Because we know how miserable it is following Jesus at a distance. You know what it's like. Some of you might know what it's like to follow Jesus at a distance. That last night you're going to the bar and you're trying to pick up women, and then here you are today going to church and you feel miserable. And it does. It is miserable. It's so miserable. Right? I mean, we know how this feels. You have too much of Jesus in you to enjoy the world and too much of the world to enjoy Jesus. And that's the problem. We go, I'm just so miserable. It's like, yes, because you're falling at a distance. It's never safe. It's never safe following Jesus at a distance. That's what Peter's doing. And then what does he do next? You notice that next phrase? It says he's warming himself by the fire. Notice that he's warming himself by the fire with the servants. Now, I have to point this out because most people who study this will say the word servants is the same word used for those who are the ones beating Jesus just moments later. Peter's with people who are about to just beat Jesus, spit on Jesus, hit Jesus, and he's, he's warming himself. And honestly, what we do see is, man, when you warm yourself with the enemy, you will always get burned. It will always be painful. I don't, I don't understand Peter's thinking at this point in time. The people that have just taken Jesus to put him on trial, there's Peter trying to act like all oh, incognito, like just be warm himself by the fire. We see that he's putting himself in a compromising situation. And you might know what that's like. He's put himself in an area where he probably shouldn't be there. Here's the thing. We could look at Peter and say, what Peter's doing is not wrong. I cannot, I cannot say fully or clearly, Peter being at the fire is sinful. I don't know if I can fully say that. And I think that Christians will make this argument. They're like, well, I can't say that me dating this person is sinful. I can't say that watching this show necessarily is sinful. I can't say, and we try to justify our excuses and make, make some of these things. And, and here's what we see Peter. Peter's just like, I'm just warming myself by the fire. There's nothing wrong with that. And what we see is the danger of just putting ourselves in, un, in just compromising situations. And I, I would love for us to take, just to learn from Peter and say, why would I try to find value? Why would I try to put myself in situations that might be compromising to my faith, that might put me in a place where I'm actually affirming those who hate Jesus, or I'm affirming their lifestyle who hate Jesus, or are against Jesus, and Peter's doing this. He's just putting himself in these uncomfortable, awkward situations, and, and here's what Mark is doing. He's introducing to us Peter in this way, and now he's going to show us Jesus. So look at verse 55. It says this, now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against Jesus, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against Jesus, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But not even did their testimonies agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What? what what is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. If you compare all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it actually seems that Jesus went to six different trials. And please like, take note of that. It's a busy night. 
he gets arrested in the evening, and within this night, within like a 12-hour period, he's going to three religious trials and three Roman political trials, and you can, you can do that on your own study. You can read all the different councils. He's sitting before this person, then this person, then being brought to this person over and over again. It's a busy night. And this was so illegal what they were doing. This was not allowed in the Roman law or in the Jewish law. They're not allowed to arrest someone at night and, and put them on trial at night while people are asleep and not aware. Actually, even according to rabbinical law, they have, I think, like six different things they broke. We'll throw these up here for you. You can see this. Just so you can see, this is not about finding the truth. This is about condemning Jesus. Look at the first thing. Uh, in capital cases like Jesus, trials at night were forbidden. In cases where a guilty verdict was reached, a second day and session was required to ensure a fair trial. Such a trial should not convene on a Sabbath or festival. A charge of blasphemy could not be sustained unless the defendant cursed God's name and then the penalty was to be, de to be death by stoning. No formal meeting of the Sanhedrin ever took place in the temple uh, precincts, the proper location for a trial. Jesus was not offered or provided a defense attorney. I mean, according to Jewish law, they're breaking their own law. Like, they're breaking their own law. Here's the thing. It really wasn't about finding out the truth is how can we condemn Jesus and condemn as fast as possible so there's not a mob. I mean, when you really think about it, what was Jesus arrested for? What, what, what was he murdered for? What did they, why did they hang him on the cross? They're trying to show Jesus as like an insurgent, as a revolutionary, saying, I'm going against Rome. I'm going to build my own kingdom. They're trying to paint Jesus in this light. He's made a capital offense of saying, I'm going to tear down the temple. What did Jesus really say? We know in John 2, Jesus says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up, speaking of his body. They heard that. And they're saying, Jesus said, I will destroy the temple. He never said, I will destroy the temple. He said, destroy the temple, speaking of his body and I will build it up. I'll raise it up three days later. But they're thinking Jesus is going to tear it on the temple. And they're, they're trying to bring up all these accusations against him. None of them are, are really relating well. Again, for us today and back then, you could say, man, you're innocent until proven guilty, not with Jesus. He's guilty until proven innocent. And we see him on trial. This is unjust. Nothing is going down in a legal way, in a right way. It's at night. And again, why? Their whole goal and their whole aim is to put Jesus to death as fast as po possible, as quick as possible. And here's what we see. We see the chief priest, the high priest, saying, do you say nothing? And what does Jesus do? He says nothing. They're bringing all these accusations, and he's silent, it says. He's silent before them. And Jesus doing this, maybe you know this, by Jesus being silent, and you can read the other Gospels, he's fulfilling Scripture. By him not defending himself, by him keeping his mouth quiet, He's fulfilling scripture. It's Isaiah 53, verse 7. But it says this. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus is there on trial. They're bringing false accusations. Their testimony isn't agreeing. And Jesus is just being quiet. Isaiah and Mark both depict Jesus as a sheep being led to slaughter. No advocate, no defense attorney. He's a sheep about to be slaughtered. Here's the God of the universe being called a sheep, silent, being led to the slaughter. And this is what's so fascinating to me is because Jesus, who's God and the creator, became a sheep, and we are the sheep. We deserve the slaughter, and yet, and yet he bore it, yet he took it. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, it talks about us being like sheep. And it actually says it this way. It says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See, we are the ones. We are the ones who should have been led to that slaughter in a sense. And here's Jesus being that sheep, just silent. Jesus took on the sin of the world. You know, back in the Old Testament, if you were to offer a lamb or sacrifice, you'd literally lay your hands on the, sh the sheep's or the goat's head. You'd lay your hands on its head. And while the high priest was killing it, you'd confess your sins. 
and you're and I want you to think about how, how impacting this is. Imagine how impactful this is. You're saying your sins out loud as you're watching this thing suffer and bleed out and die. And you're saying, because of my sins, someone else, something else needed to die. Because of my sins, blood needed to be shed, and that's Jesus. Jesus is that lamb. We confess our sins. We're saying our sins. We're saying, because of my sins, there had to be, there, judgment had to be paid for. Sin had to be paid for. Jesus took on my sins. It's almost this transferal. They lay their hands on the sheep's head as if their sins were being transferred over to the lamb. And Jesus is that lamb who we're confessing our, our sins, being transferred over to him, just being silent before he's being slaughtered. See, he's silent before all these accusations, and now they're going to ask him a question. It's not an accusation. It's a question, and with this question, he finally speaks up. Look at verse uh, 61 again. He kept silent and answered nothing. Verse 61, it says, Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further evidence do we need? Do we have it of witnesses? Have you heard the blasphemy? What do you think? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. I want you to see Jesus' response. Are you the son of the blessed? Are you, are you the Messiah? Are you, the, are you God? Like they're asking him this question. And Jesus' response is simply, I am. And he says to them, you will see the Son of Man come with clouds and with great power. And here's, here's why Jesus responds in this way. Um, many times in all the Gospels, Jesus will have this short response of simply, I am. In Greek, it's ego and me. I am, I am, I am. And really, they'd hear that, and that was blasphemy to them. I know it's like, I am. I just picture Jesus saying that and then pausing. When Jesus says, I am, what, what would that do if you're a Jew? What does that do to your minds? It takes you back to Moses. When Moses is being sent to the nation of, of Israel, sent to redeem them out of slavery, and God says, Moses, go to the nation of Israel, take them out of slavery, redeem them. They're my people, take them. And Moses goes, God, but who shall I tell them is sending me? And God says, Moses, tell them that I am is sending you. I was like, I am what? Like, I am that I am. And here's the thing. God answered, I am. Jesus is on the scene now and says, I am. And this is blasphemy. To the, the, you're, you're saying you're God? You're saying you're the I am? And, and that's why their high priest is tearing his clothes. And this is what's really interesting to me. He, Jesus is actually, if you read the rest of, the, of 62, he's actually referring to Daniel 7. Write down Daniel 7. Because this is a messianic prophecy about how the Messiah will come and he will judge the world. He'll come with the clouds. This is not just saying he's going to come with like humidity and like the water. He's coming with clouds, meaning he's coming with the glory of God. Whenever you see clouds in the Old Testament, you saw the presence of God. On the mountain, lead the people of Israel through the wilderness. Whenever you see clouds, you see the presence of God. And he's saying, listen, you're going to see me. You're going to see the Son of Man coming with clouds. And here's the idea, and I want you to understand what's happening. Jesus is on trial. He's the judge of the world being judged. And I believe Mark is pointing out that great paradox. And the idea is simply this. The judge of the world is being judged. The one who will come back and judge those who judged him is taking on judgment. The one who's actually, they have no right whatsoever, obviously. Like, Jesus at any point in time could just walk away, could say anything, could stop time. I mean, here's the judge taking this on innocently. It's funny, my son, Micah, when I ask him to do something that he doesn't enjoy or like, I'm like, Micah, can you go do this? He's like, no, daddy, go to timeout. He's like, tell me to go to timeout. And I'm like, what makes you think you can tell me to go to timeout? And it's kind of cute, but you like can't, as a parent, you just can't smile. And I hate that. Like, I can't wait to be a grandparent for that reason. I'm like, ha! But it's like, no, daddy, you go to timeout. And it's like, who, who are you to tell me, right? And here, it's almost like, think about that with Jesus. Hey, you're going to be judged. So I was like, oh, it's cute, but it's not. And Jesus actually puts himself underneath it. And, and I do want you to see this, because here's what we can, we do the same thing still today. They were trying to sit in God's seat judging God. They were trying to judge God. 
I really do think that Christians and non-Christians, everyone still likes that seat. We want to be in the place of God judging God. I don't like how God does this. Why would God say this? Why would God do this? And we sit in the seat of judgment against God. And it's almost as if we still today put God on trial. God, why would you do this? Why would you allow this? I don't like that about you, God. And see, here's what sin is. Simply put, sin is putting yourself in the place of God. If you're going to define sin in a simple way, sin is putting yourself in the place of God. I want to do what I want to do. No one's going to tell me otherwise. God's not going to tell me otherwise. And sin is now putting yourself in the judgment seat and putting God on trial. Saying, God, I don't agree with this. I don't like this. I want nothing to do with this. And you see the judge of the world is taking on judgment. And this is the most humbling thing that Christianity says, our God became a man and became judged. That God did not need to walk through judgment, that God did not need to take it on, but he became judged. And sin is putting yourself in the place of God, judging God. Why would God, how could God? And another way of sin is this way, and I think this is so true. Sin is substituting yourself for God, but salvation is God substituting himself for us. Think about that. Sin is me trying to substitute myself for God, but you know what salvation is? It's so beautiful. God is, salvation is God substituting himself for us. God's saying, don't take my place, but I'll take your place. Don't you dare for a second try to pretend you're God and take the place of God, but you know what? I'm going to take the place of man bearing judgment. I'm going to bear the judgment of the world so you don't have to. I'm going to take on the judge and the sin of the world so that you can be freed. And we see Jesus just being silent. Now he speaks up at this moment in time, and this makes them furious and they tear their garments, and they're upset, and they're mad. What else do we need? And Jesus just, you see the strength, and beauty, and this grace of Jesus in this moment, and they're furious by this. How dare he make himself equal with God? How dare he act like he judged us? You're on trial, not us. You're going to come back with clouds of glory. You're going to judge, and this makes them furious. And what does it say in verse 65? Verse 65, I had to like stop and read it before I could just even move on. Verse 65, then some began to spit on Jesus and to blindfold him, and to beat him, and to say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hands. The one who created their hands is being beaten with their hands. The one who created their mouth that they can accuse and say prophesy, the one who created their saliva, the one who created all of that is just taking on the judgment. I don't know if I stop and think about, look what we did to God. And this is just the start of it. I mean, it's going to get more intense next week and then the week after. We just, see, we just see Jesus taking on judgment over and over. I mean, they're spitting, they're hitting, they're mocking, prophesy, which one of us hit you? And they're just mocking and belittling the God of the universe. And he just takes it. He takes it. This is meekness like I've never seen. This is power under control like I've never seen. I don't know about you, but if this is happening to me, I would just be like, be gone. And like, they just eva- evaporate, right? Like, what do you, I, I don't, get, just the humility of Jesus honestly blows my mind. And when I think about following Jesus and Jesus says, be like that, be like that. Hey, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And I go, man, but I I don't get that. But God, they're walking all over me. It's like, no, no. It's meekness. It's power under control. It's showing that you understand that, like Jesus said and did, he goes, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't get it. They have no idea what they're doing. And again, I don't want to separate myself from the story and be like, that's not me. There have been times in my life, in a sense, I've abused God. I don't want you. I want nothing to do with you. I'll be angry. I'll be bitter. I'll, like, laugh at him. There will be times in my heart I'll be cynical towards God. And I'm saying, we can look down on them, but yet our hearts still do the same thing today. 
People still abuse, spit at God, mock God. I mean, this is the still, same thing's happening today. And God, in his grace, will only take it for so long. He'll come back as the judge. We do see that. But God, the first time in his first, know Jesus in his first coming. Know Jesus as a lamb taking on the sin of the world. Don't know Jesus as the king who comes to make righteousness and, and judgment on the earth for those who've wronged. Like, let's know Jesus in this way. Let's know Jesus as a lamb who took on the sin of the world. And so Jesus is taking this on. Charles Spurgeon said about this moment, he, he wrote this. He said, in two things. He said, be astonished, O heavens, and be horribly afraid. His face is the light of the universe. His person is the glory of heaven. And they began to spit on him. Alas, my God, that man should be so base. He says, glory be to God that spit, that spittle, spit, glory be to God that spit on his countenance. It means a clear, bright face for me. Those false accusations on his character mean no condemnation for me. Because he was spit upon, he's like, my face can be clean. Because he took on false accusations, I can be made new. I can be clean. Because he took on the judgment of the world, I don't have to take on the judgment. God bore it. We see the faithful witness of Jesus in this moment. And while this is happening, at this moment, Peter's by the fire, warming himself with the enemies, warming himself with those who abused him and beat him. Peter's with him. And we see him being on trial in a much smaller way. And we see how, now how he responds. So we're going to see number two next, the unfaithful witness of man. Look at verse 66. Verse 66. It says, Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and when, he, when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, look, like, look, look, this is one of them. But Peter denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, saying, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed, then Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he thought about it. He wept. I want you to think about for a moment, just for a moment, if you're in public and there's a notable person, a pastor, let's say, and he starts to be in a swear and he's dropping every word you could ever imagine in front of like a teenage girl, for like a young girl. Like a, there's a teenage girl and he's just going off on how he does not know Jesus and he's cursing her out and he's cursing the situation. What would happen to that guy today in 2018? You probably wouldn't see him anymore in ministry. You probably wouldn't see him around. And that was Peter. <laughs> Now, I'm not advocating for this. I'm not saying, hey, we right. I'm not doing that at all. What I'm saying is I'm so thankful what we're going to see is Jesus redeem him and bring him back. I'm so thankful at this moment in time. If you press pause in this moment, I'm so thankful his ministry's not done. I'm so thankful his ministry's not over. Honestly, any other religion, any other worldview other than the grace of God, this guy would be finished. He'd be done. You're not going to see this guy not even just be finished, but become the major leader of the Christian movement where the gospel is spread to the Gentiles through this guy in many ways, and to the Jews through this guy. You're, you're going to see him be used in so many ways. But just, I want you to think about this moment. Three times. Three times Peter fell asleep in the garden. Peter, wake up. Peter, stay awake. Peter, pray with me. Three times he fell asleep. Three times he's denying him. And we see Peter over and over again miss it to the point where this, this girl, this like, almost like a young girl, the word being used, is now saying, no, you must be the guy. And he's swearing and he's cursing. And the, the word being used here is like anathematized. I can't even say it. Um, but this idea is not just that he's swearing or cursing, but he's cursing. There's an object to his curse. 
The point is, most people do believe, and I do believe, that he's not just cursing the situation, he's literally cursing Jesus. Because think about this. If they're saying, prove to us you're not one of his disciples, a disciple surely wouldn't curse his master. So literally, Peter in this moment is cursing Jesus. And imagine just the three years of ministry. Imagine the moments before, even if all of them, even if all of them leave you, I won't. I'll die with you. And then he's cursing. I do not know this man. Literally cursing Jesus himself to get out of the situation. And I can't imagine what's going through his mind. It's, we're actually told another gospel at this moment in time. He looks over and makes eye contact with Jesus. And he weeps. And he weeps bitterly. I mean, I can't imagine the weight of that. When this word is this, like, wept, it's like he's broken so much to the point of just like no return. It's just, have you ever had like an ugly cry? <laughs> This is ugly cry, Peter. This is, I can't believe what I just did, and it's not, this is like, I can't believe I just cursed my Lord, my God. The same person on the boat where he says, my Lord. The same person, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The same, with the same mouth, he blessed God, the same mouth, he's cursing God. And he's at the lowest of lows, and he breaks, and he's broken, and he's weeping over this. And I, there has to be something said of this, and I, I need to take a moment to talk about this, because there are times, and we can't just hate on Peter for this, but there's so many times I think we've, we've said things or done things. And let me just say this. Please respond with a genuine brokenness, like a genuine humility. The Bible does talk about something called godly sorrow versus worldly sorrow. And I, I see the difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is almost like, man, I, I got, it was exposed what I did. It was found out what I did. I'm not really sorry. I'm just more remorseful. I'm not really broken by it. Uh, it's probably not a good idea. Peter is this, this godly sorrow. just re- broken, repentant. I can't believe and he comes to this point of just confessing his sin before God. And here's what I want to even remember and point out. Do you remember when Jesus said to Peter in the garden, he goes, Peter, Peter, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. But what does Jesus say? He goes, but be of good cheer. I've prayed for you. I've interceded for you is the word. And, he goes, and when you were restored, go back to Galilee. I want you to think about those words Jesus said to Peter. Hopefully this is what, you know, came into his mind. Please hear this. Peter's on trial, right? Three times asking, aren't you? Aren't you this one? Aren't you? And you have Jesus saying, listen, Peter, I'm the one who's interceding for you. I'm your advocate. The enemy wants to sift you, but I'm interceding for you. Can we just think about this courtroom scenario again? There's no one to intercede for Jesus, but you have Peter. You have Jesus interceding for Peter, saying, Peter, when you deny me, when you're broken, listen, I've interceded for you. I prayed you. Go back. Go back to Galilee and find me there. When I've been raised, go back and find me. And I hope those are the words that, that crowded Peter's mind at that moment. I don't know. But I do want us to see this, that we do have someone who intercedes for us, that when we do fail, that when we do fall, we have an advocate. Church, can I encourage you with this? Because I need this. I've read the story of Peter, and I, I, I maybe kind of put him in a box, or I maybe thought I've been like him at times, and maybe felt this crazy deep like, condemnation. And, and here's what I want you to see. Jesus told Peter, Peter, I've, I'm advocated for you. I've prayed for you. I've interceded before you. Listen, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, what does it say? 1 John 2, verse 1, it says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Do you hear that? When you sin, you have an advocate. You have one on your behalf pleading your case before God. 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all righteousness. I don't know if you've ever read that verse and thought about this. He is faithful and just. He is just to forgive you your sins. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a sermon on 1 John 1, 9, and, and it's brilliant. He talked about this. He goes, I've never considered the fact that God, in God's justice, he must forgive me. Not just in his mercy. If God is just, 
He has to forgive me because he's already paid for my sins once. He's not going to pay for my sins twice. That'd be unjust. God had, in his God's justice, he has to forgive us because sin has already been judged. So he says, hey, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. He, he can't be unjust. He can't judge your sin twice on you. There's a side of this we got to see that we have someone pleading our case before God saying, no, no, I know, I know this looks bad. I know this looks bad. Look at Peter cursing and swearing, but he's mine. Hey, but Peter, I prayed for you. I've interceded for you. What does Romans 8.33 say? Listen to this verse because it just fits so well here. It says, who will bring a charge against God's elect? Who will bring a charge? Any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it who condemns? It is Jesus who died. More than that, he was raised to life and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. We have an advocate. We have one who pleads our case. We have one who says he's mine or she's mine. She's forgiven. He's forgiven. I know this looks bad, but they're mine. And he's pleading the case before God. And I'm so thankful that when I screw up royally like Peter, that when I, I've said something or did something I should have done, I have one who says, listen, listen, I ha- in God's justice and mercy, he's forgiven. This sin has already been judged. I prayed for you. Listen, when you're restored, go back, find me. And there's some hope in that comment. And we have to feel that. We have to see that. See, see, Mark is paralleling the account of Jesus and Peter saying, look at Jesus is condemned. Peter's actually let go. We see that Jesus is judged innocently. Peter is judged even though he's found guilty of following Jesus. He's trying to show us how they respond. He's trying to compare this. And I, I have to point this out because what we see is ultimately Jesus is not just like he's dismissing this, but he's substituting himself for Peter. He's saying, I have taken your place. I have borne the judgment so you don't have to. See, if you read Mark's gospel, you guys, and you look at verse 72, it ends there with Peter. Do you notice that? It just ends. We don't see Peter again in the gospel of Mark. It's just over for Peter. I'm thankful for the other gospels. Can I remind you who helped, who helped Mark write this book? Who was it? Peter is so interesting to me. One guy wrote about this. His last name is Bachman. He said this. Listen, he goes, no one in the early church other than Peter himself would have dared or wished to highlight the weakness and failure of the most revered and significant leader in the entire Christian movement with ca- the candor Mark's narrative does. Therefore, the only possible source for the account of Peter's denial would be Peter himself. It's like, look how, how Peter's portrayed it and just ends. And I'm thankful for John's gospel. I'm thankful for John who's like, hey, it doesn't end there. If you read John's gospel, remember in John 21, Peter is in Galilee. He, he did what Jesus did. He's in Galilee. He hasn't seen Jesus. He's, he's fishing. He sees Jesus from the shore. Peter's, he jumps out of his book. He's swimming over to Jesus. He gets out of the water. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me more than these? And, and I have no idea what the these was. It could have been fishing. It could have been the fish. I think it was the disciples. You know why? What did Peter say? Even if all of, they did, uh, all of them, all the other disciples deny you, I won't. I think Jesus is going, do you love me more than these other guys? Just because realizing, like, he, he did proclaim that at one point, and he goes, yes, Lord, you know that I like you. It really is interesting to study it in the Greek, because he's like, do you agape me? And he goes, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. That's literally what he's saying. Do you, do you agape me? You, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. The third time Jesus says, do you phileo me? He goes, you know I phileo you. J- Peter was much more humbled and came, like, I can't even say, like, oh, God, I can't even say I love you unconditionally. You know, you know me. You know I have, I've loved you conditionally at different points. But what do we see? Peter denying Jesus three times. Jesus restoring Peter three times, saying, feed my sheep, tend my sheep, feed my He's over and over again restoring Peter. This makes no sense to me. This wouldn't fit to me in any other worldview or religion where the guy who's saying, who's cursing, who's cursing in the, his greatest moment of need, he's cursing the man of Jesus. He's cursing him. And then here's Jesus restoring him, saying, you're going to leave this church. Because you know what it's like to be so broken. You know what it's like to be so in pain. You actually can relate Peter more than you think. 
Church, can I point something out that I've had to like wrestle with myself in this? I really want you to think about this. What if Peter, what if Peter said, Are you, weren't you one of the Galileans like I was? I am. I, I'm one of the followers of Jesus. You wonder what the outcome of Peter to be. Like, okay, you're getting crucified with him. I'm, a part of me wonders if Peter was so bold, what would have happened? And, and here's the thing. It would have been great if Peter was like so bold. Hey, I'm one of his disciples. Yeah, that's me. And you wonder, like, okay, so Peter's, let's, let's just say he's crucified. There's no Acts 2 with Peter preaching the gospel. There's no Acts 10 with Peter preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. There's no, here, here's the thing. Sometimes we think we have like a plan A with God. But many times it looks like a plan B, like something like this looks like a plan B. This wasn't, this wasn't the ideal. It wasn't ideal for, G, for Peter to deny Jesus. I'm not, I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that God took this plan B and almost made it become a plan A. Like it appears so much like a plan A at this point in time. Something that was like, I can't believe Peter cursed and denied Jesus. This is awful. But, but God in his grace and restoration and his redemptive nature goes, I know this is terrible, but this is now my plan A. That you're going to be the leader of the church. Because I think we've all gotten to the place in life where we go, God, I've blown it so much. And my life feels like plan B. And God's saying, no, no, I can make plan B's your plan A. I can make all things new. Because I think that many of us have been like Peter and we've denied or we've said things or we've followed Jesus at a distance and it breaks our heart. And I can tell you, you need to have that face-to-face moment with Jesus on the beach, like John 20. You need to have that face-to-face moment where he says, listen, I don't condemn you. Where he says, feed my sheep, tend my sheep. You, you need to have that face-to-face moment and get back in the game and get back in ministry and say, God, that is the past. You've made all things new. I'm so thankful that Jesus makes all things new, all things new, not just some things, not just partial things. He makes all things new. The word new literally means he's continually making everything new, always. He's always making all things new all the time. He doesn't make partial things new or some things new. Everything's made new. Please hear this because your life might feel like a plan B, but I've already done this. I've already gone this path. And Jesus is saying, I can make your plan D, plan A. I I can make this something. I can redeem this. I can make you the leader. You've experienced the lowest of lows. You're going to lead the church now, Peter, because you can relate more more than anyone. I don't get this. I don't get the grace of God. I struggle with the grace of God. I don't get how... One man could be cursing Jesus, the leader of the church, on this rock, I'll build my church, and like now he's crumbling, and Jesus is like, I'm s- you're still necessary. I'm still going to use you. I don't get that. I really don't. I don't get the grace of God in my life. When I've been so just arrogant to God, or think I can do this myself, and God's like, I'm going to show you grace again. I can re- and again, it's not a cop-out to fail, but it's a reminder that God's grace is way bigger than my failures. It's a reminder that though I fail, God's grace is so much greater. Shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? God forbid. God forbid. How can we who are dead to sin live any longer? Let's walk now in that newness of life, but God's grace is so outweighs my failures. Remember in 1 John 3, verse 20, we went through 1 John like a year ago. But remember there's, there's a verse that says, for if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And how can you not think of Peter? How can you not think of Peter when his heart condemns him? Do you notice that Peter says, I do not know this man? He can't even say Jesus. I don't, I don't know this man. He can't even say his name. He goes to Jesus on the shore and he's like, he just swims over to him with this excitement, but I just picture him running to Jesus and then say nothing. Like, he runs to Jesus like, just nothing can come out of his mouth. And Jesus three times, can I tell you, Peter three times denied Jesus publicly. Jesus three times restores G- Peter publicly. Three times he denies him publicly and Jesus is like, let me make this public. See this guy? He's going to feed my sheep, tend my sheep. How does Peter's life end? Peter's life ends being crucified on a cross upside down. Peter learned from this moment. Peter took this moment and said, I will never deny him again. 
to the point where he's literally crucified upside down by Nero. Because he doesn't want to be crucified like Jesus. I can't, be, I can't be put to death the same way he was put to death. Make it different. Upside down, okay. My point is, Peter, Peter learned from this. I know it ends, and Mark's so sad, he, just we- he wept. Verse 15, immediately, remember Mark's word? Immediately, just Mark just moves on. <laughs> and, and we know, though, from the gospel accounts, from history, from the book of Acts, we just see Peter being that pillar in the church. We see Jesus say, though you fail, though you are faithless, I am faithful. I cannot deny who I am. Church, I am so thankful that though I fail, I have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. I have one who's pleading my case. I have one who intercedes. I, I have one who goes to the Father and says, he's forgiven, he's mine. She's forgiven, she's mine. What they've done, what they've said, they're mine. But listen, there needs to be godly sorrow. There needs to be a genuine repentance. There needs to be that face-to-face moment with Jesus on the seashore I bl- and Jesus restoring you. There needs to be that. There needs to be that time where Jesus says, you're mine, I'm gonna restore you back to this. So have that. Here's what I'm gonna ask. I'm gonna ask that we just close out in prayer quietly, briefly. And if you would, if everyone would just, right now, everyone would just bow their head for a moment, just for a moment. We're gonna pray, but while your eyes are closed and your head is bowed, can you just think about how Jesus has been your advocate? Can you think about how Jesus pleads your case? Can you think about the fact that Jesus says, the enemy's trying to sift you as we but be of good cheer. I have prayed for you. Jesus is your advocate. He inter- I cannot stress that enough. He's literally at the right hand of the Father, pleading our case, making intercession, whatever words you want to use, he's our advocate. I want you to think about Jesus right now saying this, he's mine. You're mine. She's mine. I want you to think about Jesus looking at you and saying your name, saying your name and saying that person's forgiven their mind. You need to see Jesus as that great advocate who pleads your case. That though you fail, he is faithful. He will not deny who he is. Jesus, I just want to thank you that you've called me out by name. God, I want to thank you that you know me and you know everyone here by name that I so believe according to your word before we're even formed in our mother's womb, you knew us. You knew us, God. You knit us together. You knew when we'd fail, how we'd fail, and despite all of that, you loved us. You demonstrated your love for us. You came and died on a cross in our moments that were, that, that were unimaginable. And, and the moments we've denied you and ran from you and cursed you, God, you bore all of the weight of that on the cross and you said, forgiven. Jesus, I ask for, for myself and, and everyone in here, I, I know many of us wrestle with this idea of, of being forgiven and unforgiveness. God, thank you that whom the Son sets free is free indeed. God, thank you that you are faithful even when we're not. Thank you that salvation is based upon the finished work of the cross and not my faithfulness, but yours. But Jesus, we do ask that your grace would motivate us, that your grace would transform us, that Jesus, like Peter, we'd have that aha moment and say, I am a sinful man, but you've restored me. So Jesus, we invite you here. We ask as we sing to you now that you would just speak your word over us. God, as that rooster crowed and Peter's reminded of your words, God, remind us of your words, what you say to us, that it is finished, that Jesus, we are yours. So speak to everyone, God. Speak to my heart. We just ask Jesus in your name. Amen. Feel free to worship. You can stand, you can sit. Let's just close with worship.